Welcome to episode 14 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again is Mr. John M. Wilson. Welcome back, John. Hello. Looking forward to a fantastic time today. That was not a pun at all. Oh, no, it's complete coincidence that we're looking at Fantastic Four number one. Yeah. Credited to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Cover dated November 1961, released on or about August 8th, 1961. As we said, this came in at number 14 in the countdown. So, yeah, the Fantastic Four number one. The comic that I think more than Marvel's number one. Not Marvel's. Marvel Comics. More than Marvel Comics number one, the Fantastic Four number one is really what started what we consider Marvel. So it's hugely important. We'll talk about the, the read and everything as we go along here, but this is, this is a big one, and it's number 14 in the countdown. Yeah, this is the, the sort of the pillar that started everything. This came out because... You know, superheroes had gone by the wayside as a result of the Wortham Trials and Seduction of the Innocent and that sort of thing. And then DC has experimented with bringing back some of their Golden Age characters in Silver Age reinterpretations, and they had done quite well with it. They launched the Justice League, which was doing very well for DC, and Marvel's publisher wanted something similar at Marvel. He wanted another team book, and he tasked Stan Lee with making one. You know, it's interesting. People say Justice League was doing really, really well. I've seen the sales numbers wasn't doing that well. <laughs> it was trailing behind yeah. all of the solo comics that feature the characters in the book. Yeah, it did cause a boost in the solo titles as well, because there were some people who picked up Justice League and were exposed to other characters for the first time and then started going to buy their books as well. So it had a, sort of a buoy effect right, on DC's full line. And it was the only team book being done at the time, made up, of course, of characters from other stories, which wasn't unheard of at all in the golden age because you had everything from all-star comics to leading comics to the very briefly lived all winners comics well all winner comics as a series was not brief lived but the idea of turning into a team book only lasted two issues so you had a lot you had several teams going on back in the day but you know since superheroes had only been seeing a revival in the last five years at this point Justice League of America was the only place where they had once gone back, once again, gone back to the idea of taking your most popular characters and putting them all in a book together. And so the really, I don't know if dying is the right word. That might be too strong of a word, but the flagging Atlas Comics slash Marvel Comics was looking for something new to do. Mm -hmm. So let's make a team of superheroes. Only we don't have seven different superheroes already going to put into a team. So make up new ones. Yeah. And meanwhile, Stan Lee was not happy with the state of the comics industry and how restrictive the writing was. And as someone who once read all of my comics in chronological order and got to 1964 that way, reading what DC published right before this, it can be a chore to sit down and read large numbers of issues at once because they are very simple stories, very clear-cut, good and evil, very saccharine, lots of what Mission Log calls you see Timmy moments, where they're spelling out the morals, or, you know, Superman appears to be a jerk, but it turns out he's doing it to teach Lois or Jimmy a lesson. And there were, there were, there were a handful of story formats 
that they would just continue to reuse and reuse and reuse with different spins on the same idea. Give Superboy an excuse to talk about three different action scenes that he did. And so now you can have three different action beats that don't have to be tied by a story because they're just part of someone else's, you know, lecture about stuff. Or, um, you know, just various things. And there was a lot of sameness going on in the industry. Well, there was. DC editors were under the impression, which may have been correct at the time, that the lifespan of your reader was about three years. So every three years, you had a totally new set of readers, so you could rewrite three-year-old stories and tell them again. And that had begun to shift since 1956 with the rebirth of The Flash and the introduction of Green Lantern. Superman saw a shift between 56 and 58 toward a more sci-fi feel to the character. Uh, certainly you still had your sitcom feel because you had your Lois Lane comics and Jimmy Olsen comics. But, you know, they were having some success with changing how they did superhero stories. They were, but they were all still very pedestrian and your good guys were completely good through and through. And Stanley found the lack of complexity frustrating and was ready to leave the comics industry. And he was actually about to resign when his wife said, you know what, you've been wanting to do a team book the other way, right? Some other way. They're asking you to do a team book. Why don't, you know, if this is going to be your last comic, why don't you write it the way you want to write it? And Stanley took that advice and there came the Fantastic Four where you get a team book where the characters don't necessarily get along. They're not completely altruistic and they have personal problems and personal issues. And when you read things in chronological order, as I did, at least coming off of DC, it was like a watershed moment. It was a complete transformation from what had come before. So I've actually read this a few times, and when I read it in isolation, just going back and reading it out of the context of the time when I was reading it for the first time in the Marvel Milestone reprints in the 90s, I didn't understand why it was treated as the watermark that it was. I didn't get it when I reread it in the Essentials or in the DVD-ROMs. It wasn't until about the fifth or sixth time I had read it when I was doing things in chronological order that I could say, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Now I see why everyone was going, oh my god, this is huge. From the from the 90s or 2000s, looking back on it is a very different perspective from the 1950s and 60s looking forward through it. Oh, yes. So, yeah, this is one where had you asked me to put together a list of Marvel 75 greatest stories in the 90s, this would have been on there, but it would have been lower than spot 14. Now I'd almost be tempted to put it higher because it's not just a decent issue from the 60s. It transformed the industry. And it was such a risk at the time that the publisher didn't want to put the Atlas brand name on it. And he decided, okay, we're going to call this Marvel Comics. So if it's a disaster, we have some distance between us and we can pretend we never had anything to do with it. And even that logo is nondescript and doesn't actually say Marvel on the cover. So they could still use the name Marvel Comics later, but they're putting it on here in a, in a sort of clandestine way in case. <laughs> Yeah, And there's another thing that the Fantastic Four does that I think Stanley does this idea with the confines and structures that he's used to of comics of the day. But I think Alpha Flight took the idea and did it even more extensively in its first year. And that is that these are characters who have lives and they're doing their mm-hmm. things and they're doing their things separately. And yes. they get to be heroes, or, or at least, you know, they certainly have their lives changed by events, and they come together as a team to do stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just the way 60s wrote comics, when you saw that separateness to their lives, it was for a page or two, rather than an entire year of issues. 
Yeah, we're, this is it is very much a different story. We should get into the synopsis to help spell that out. Okay. Because up to this point, like everyone was recapped, you knew what the the powers were and all that. And then comes the Fantastic Four, where page one, they're not being introduced as Mr. Fantastic, the Thing, the Invisible Girl, and the Human Torch. They're introduced on the top as Dr. Reed Richards, Ben Grimm, Susan Storm, and Johnny Storm. So right there, they're not in costume. That's your introduction to the Fantastic Four. They're just four people. Yeah, this is part of Stanley making active efforts to eschew everything about the superhero genre that he finds questionable. Some of it's going to work its way back in. Certainly by issue three, a lot of those trappings have come back in. But in this first issue, it's a superhero story, definitely. But so many of the classic trappings have been tossed out the window. Yeah, issue three is where they get costumes for the first time. Right. Things like that. And we should mention, even though you know it's innovative in terms of the structure, there are people who point to how much input Jack Kirby, the artist, had on it. As you can clearly see by the similarities to DC's Challengers of the Unknown, which Kirby had already co-created. Yeah. He might, he, they might have done a different uh, spacesuit design on these guys because it really is exactly like a Challengers outfit. Yeah. It, I mean, from there, the Challengers, their ability was just that they cheated fate. They were lucky. But that's about it. They are otherwise four normal guys that just had similar personality sets that became much more exaggerated here in powers that seem to be related directly to the four elements, but we'll get to that. So this starts off with a flare that spells the words Fantastic Four in the sky. And we have a shadowy figure saying, okay, it's the first time I found it necessary to give the signal. I pray it will be the last. And when that comes out, Sue Storm is at some society function or at a society friend's house. And she turns invisible and walks out, stunning people on the street, going for a cab and paying for it with money that's floating in the air and so forth. We get a rather sizable man in a men's clothing store who's having a hard time finding things his size. Here's about the signal, peels off the overcoat and hat, and the thing walks out. He actually walks out through a door that he doesn't fit through and smashes the, the doorway on the way out. Which makes you wonder how he got in. Yeah. Ends up going through the sewer system for a bit, comes up through the streets. So we get a feel immediately for his power. And we cut from there to Johnny Storm, who's working on hot rods in a hobby that will persist through the entire series, who sees the signal, becomes Human Torch, and flies through the roof of the car. Now, this is the one sort of legacy character here. There was the Golden Age Human Torch. And as DC had been doing with The Flash and Green Lantern, they just reused that name for a totally different hero with a totally different origin. Yeah, the visual look is the same. And certainly the way Kirby does the art here is very evocative of the way the art was done in the 40s for the other Human Torch. It will be changed and so that the two Human Torches actually looked very different a bit later on. But, but yeah, he has taken the idea of the Human Torch, given that look and power set to a completely different character. Yeah. And the military doesn't know what the Human Torch is, and they end up sending jets after it, and Johnny can't control his heat, so he's trying to get away from them, but accidentally melting some, and, you know, showing concern for the pilots as they eject, and they launch heat-seeking missiles at him, but then these arms stretch out of nowhere, catch the missile, and deposit it in the ocean. And then Mr. Fantastic clearly has sort of a rubbery form as he saves Johnny's life as Johnny's flame flickers out. So we have the four characters whose powers are based on Earth with the rocky thing, air with the invisible girl, fire obviously with the human torch, and water with sort of the flowing and ductile nature of Mr. Fantastic. I never clued in on that until Ultimate Fantastic Four slapped you in the face with it. So was that intentional on Stanley's part, or is that just like 
interpretation analysis that other people have gotten out of it. It it does sound like it was deliberate more on Kirby's part with suggestions that Lee accepted. I should, yeah, I should say Lee and Kirby, uh, yeah, because Lee is, you know, not necessarily yeah. dictating the story here. But yeah, so Kirby, Kirby is using those four elements as influences on his story idea here. Yeah, we should mention that this is the post-seduction of the Innocent Era, where Stanley was effectively Marvel's only writer. So the only way he could keep up with the workload was not by scripting everything out in full in advance, and then just having artists push the pencils through to reproduce his idea, which was the norm at DC at the time. But he would instead hand artists two or three page outlines, and hire artists who he knew could tell stories and could take that two or three page outline, create a 24 page story, and then Stanley would you know, script the dialogue over top of it. So it's a much more collaborative model than what DC had out there, which has also caused several decades worth of, you know, who's the creator here debates. Now, I have a question for you, Blaine. So Reed has had conversations before this day with his friends. You know, we're going to get to their origin story in a minute, but between the origin story and today, there have obviously been conversations and they've arranged this notion of, if you ever see the flare gun, so did Reed say, if you ever see the flare gun, cause as much freaking commotion and chaos as possible on your way to the Baxter building? I would hope not. Because <laughs> but... that seems to be what's going on here. <laughs> I mean, Sue doesn't yeah. just say, oh, pardon me, I have to go make a phone call and then ditch her friend. No, she turns invisible and causes everyone to freak out. The human torch just got done tuning and making a, making this car as perfect as possible, and he melts the entire thing. And speaking of things, Ben Grimm demolishes a door and a manhole cover, and, I don't know, probably several small animals along the way. It's pretty crazy. It is, yeah. This is... We do much, much later learn in the Nine Cent issue, written by Mark Wade and penciled by Mike Wairingo, which I... You know, when Marvel opened up for the voting, I voted that that be on the list, and it didn't make it. We find out that a lot of Reed's motivation, which makes sense the way he's written in retrospect, is that he knew that because of the accident we're about to discuss, that transformed the way the, his friends appeared, that the only way to make them accepted by the public is to make them celebrity heroes. So that was the main reason he had for orchestrating the creation of the Fantastic Four. Oh, so this is sort of their, their coming out party. Yeah. Yeah, he was trying to atone, and he wanted to make a celebrity splash. So it's possible he said, and be seen on the way over, but didn't necessarily mean it this way. Uh, cutting back to the origin, we get an aspect of this that a lot of people don't recognize. Mark Wade is the one who compared Reed Richards to Indiana Jones as the adventurer, because they're, you know, and this is 1961. The idea was they were trying to beat the Russians to space and to the moon with this rocket. Ben Grimm is saying, hey, we haven't done enough research on the effects of cosmic rays. We don't think we've got enough shielding. Let's hold back on this. But Reed is saying, no, we don't have that chance. We Conditions are clear. We don't have time to wait for official clearance. So they effectively steal a rocket, which is why the passengers are Reed, the scientist who designed it, Ben, the hired pilot. And then just to fill out the crew, they don't have a proper crew. They've got Reed's girlfriend and her brother saying, no, if my sister's coming along, I'm going to be there to protect her. Just to clarify, they have Reed's fiance. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> they... they it takes a while before they seem to decide if they're boyfriend, girlfriend, or fiancé. Yeah, and this one, they're fiancé, but that, that definitely will be changed in later issues. Yeah. And and yeah, so you have two people who should be on this flight. One who maybe has an emotional investment in her 
you know, future husband's career who wants to come along and has probably been giving a lot of emotional support since she's the one who actually persuades Ben to fly the ship. And then you have the kid. Yeah. And then you have cosmic rays that are audible. (laughs) Turns out gravitational waves are audible too, Blaine. (laughs) Yeah. Can you imagine sitting in LIGO and and all of a sudden, hey, do you hear that? Warble, 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 warble. Gravitational waves! Awesome! (laughs) No, no, the LIGO guys are good, and I'm glad they finally got the result. Yeah. Yeah, cosmic rays are, they are essentially high energy radio waves. If you look at the electromagnetic spectrum, we've got long wave radio, short wave, microwave, infrared, the whole visible spectrum, ultraviolet, x-ray, gamma ray, and then cosmic rays at the top of the chart. They do come from space, but not this intense. They are not visible and they are not audible. I'll buy the visual representation just for artistic license to show what's happening. Yeah, it could just be a representation for the reader and the characters don't actually see the waves. Right. They clearly hear them. Yeah, and react to the sound. (laughs) Yeah. Unless, unless, unless. We just talked about the Hulk last episode. And he had, for whatever reason, a Geiger counter in his doctor's office that started reacting whenever he turned into the Hulk, which interestingly was never used again, as far as I know. So maybe they just have some sort of ray detector in the ship. Yeah, it's possible that the sound is like a Geiger counter style thing rather than the rays themselves. In fact, in fact, from now on, that's my headcanon. That, 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 that's what they're hearing. Yeah, that would make sense if not for the way it's represented when people revisit the story later. But that could have no, been Oh, this is the way it works. <laughs> yeah. That could be the way that Jack Kirby intended it here, and it's just been misinterpreted from that point on. But in any event, they don't make it to the moon. After that, they just crash land and discover they have powers. Sue starts fading away. The thing, so Ben Grimm becomes the thing, Reed becomes ductile to trap him, and then finally Johnny Storm catches on fire. They realize they've all been changed, and, you know, Reed says, hey, you know, we've got more powers than humans ever possessed, and Ben says, you don't have to make a speech, Big Shot, we understand, we've got to use that power to help mankind, right? Right, Ben, right. And then the Human Torch and the Invisible Girl name themselves, Ben calls himself the thing after a comment Sue made, and Reed decides to call himself Mr. Fantastic. Have you heard the audio sketch of the other Fantastic Four members having real issues with him calling himself Mr. Fantastic? I haven't. There is one out there. It's, it's, I'll have to find it and maybe I can send you a link. Maybe it's something worth putting in the show notes. But basically, they're like, okay, I can turn invisible. I'll be an invisible girl. All right. Well, I, I set on fire. I can be the human torch. And Ben's like, well, I, I'm just this monster. I guess I'll be called the thing. And Reed's like, and I'll be Mr. Fantastic. And like, what? No. Why, why are you fantastic? What's, what's fa- why, are you, why does fantastic get to be this amazing word that describes you? Why not stretchy or, or Mr. Mr. Longman or something? And so anyway, it goes on from there, and they're just giving a hard time about it. It's pretty funny. But um, that does bring us to the end of the origin story. We kind of have like a story break, sort of like almost like the second story in the book. The Fantastic Four meet the Mole Man, except that it does pick up right from the scene we had before the origin story. It does. And then, yeah, from here we find out that there's monsters coming out of holes in the ground, and they are led by the Mole Man. So the Fantastic Four, in partnership with the military, go to explore this on Monster Island, and end up getting trapped underground where there's a valley of diamonds, there's the Mole Man, who's got a secret. You know, he's trying to get vengeance at the world, because they ostracized him because of his physical deformities. 
where he ended up leading the race of Moloids down below, and in their battle, they m- managed to, to sort of subdue him and capture him to protect themselves from the monsters he leads, and eventually escape leaving him behind and all these monsters on Monster Isle, which will never trouble anyone again. Ever. Yeah, when the island blows itself up, even though it still exists in the Marvel Universe now. But yeah, this was... It was a, a decent first issue. I like the origin, and they clearly do not get along, particularly Ben doesn't necessarily understand why Reed is the leader. Yeah, I mean, the plot itself is okay, but what starts here, the impact and the significance this has on the industry, that just, yeah, this is the birth of Marvel, and Marvel's transformation of storytelling forced a transformation in DC. Yeah, it was a while before DC really started to make that response, because, I mean, Marvel doesn't immediately surge into sales, but within five years, they're they're going from a distant second to a pretty even fight for first. Yep. And we've got DC taking pot shots at Marvel right on the pages. There's an issue of Brave and the Bold, penciled by Ross Andrew, who would go on to do Spider-Man, where Batman comments about how he's been swinging on the flagpoles longer than any Peter come lately. <laughs> yeah, the rivalry back and forth was was pretty immediate. And at first, the letters columns in Marvel are like, you can, you can promote our stuff without bashing other people's stuff. And so we're all here. We're all trying to have fun making comics. At first, that is Stan Lee's very diplomatic, competition-friendly attitude. Then the word brand act starts being thrown around for uh, just representing not even DC specifically, but all the other publishers out there. It's just DC, one of the most prominent ones, or national, as I guess they were called at the time. But yeah, this is huge. This happens, and then the Hulk happens. And then they decide to bring out a whole slew of superheroes. So you have Amazing Fantasy 15, which was going to become a Spider-Man-centric story, uh, series. It just didn't get a 16. Journey into Mystery became Thor-centric. Tales to Astonish became Ant-Man-centric. Very soon after that, Tales of Suspense became Iron Man-centered. Amazing Spider-Man got his monthly going. And it's just, it's just Marvel starts putting out idea after idea after idea increasing their stable very quickly. They were nobody in 1960, and they are definitely somebody by 1963. Yeah, yeah, they were a major player, and it all starts here. I mean, if we want to talk about the significance, without the Fantastic Four, we don't have any of the Marvel movies we have now. No. Even though the Fantastic Four have gotten the short end of the stick on the movies, where I still maintain that the only truly great Fantastic Four movie is called The Incredibles. But yeah, without the Fantastic Four, we wouldn't have gotten the Hulk. We wouldn't have gotten the Avengers. We wouldn't have had Spider-Man. We wouldn't have had the X-Men. It all starts here. And for those who aren't familiar with the Fantastic Four, you know, from a historical perspective, it's worth pointing out that even though for I don't know how long, the Fantastic Four comic in modern day, has been a lower stringer. I mean, it's a sad truth that the Fantastic Four just doesn't sell well and hasn't sold well for years. In fact, there's not a Fantastic Four comic out as we're recording this. But (laughs) in its early history, especially that first hundred issue odd run with Lee and Kirby, the Fantastic Four were the number one seller at Marvel, only being rivaled by Spider-Man after several years of Spider-Man gradually getting more and more popular. So mm-hmm. they, they, they were big. They were a very, very big, very important deal. John Byrne's Fantastic Four run is still heralded as one of the most important, you know, 
Marvel Comics things they've ever done. I'm surprised it's not on this list like the New Mutants. You know, it's just like a big old run. Yeah, we do have a couple samples from it. Yeah, but. right. But there are a few runs that I'm surprised just like, why didn't the whole chunk of this just land on the list somewhere? But, mm-hmm. but anyway, so yeah, if you're Fantastic Four nowadays, you don't think of very much, especially with the comics, uh, sorry, especially with the movies being what they are and the comics not really selling very well. It's worth noting they used to be huge and they're just not anymore. Yeah. And they've had some good runs. There's the Lee Kirby run that you've already mentioned. Then there's some decent stuff that doesn't quite measure up to Lee Kirby until John Byrne takes over. After Byrne, we've got a Walt Simonson run. We've got the Wade Y. Ringo run, which is still my favorite run. You know, we've got Jonathan Hickman's run. We've got, you know, an okay run by J. Michael Straczynski. They've had top performing characters. They took the team that put together the Ultimates that knocked that out of the park with Mark Miller and Brian Hitch and put them on Fantastic Four for a while. And their first issue put the Fantastic Four back in the top 10. And that's more for anticipation. Their execution pushed it way out of the top 10 by the time they got to their 16th issue. <laughs> and um, James Robinson had a run. Was he the last big run before the series ended? Yeah, James Robinson and Leonard Kirk were doing the run with the series that led into the latest version of Secret Wars, not the 1980s Secret Wars that will be discussed in a few weeks' time, but the 2015 Secret Wars that ended with a status quo that not to avoid spoilers, and spoilers I can't give because I haven't read it yet, I'm behind on my reading, what we know is that the status quo at the end of the Secret Wars is not conducive to having an ongoing Fantastic Four title. Right. Kinda maybe like happened to them in the Ultimate World. Because after Fantastic Four number 60, Ultimate Fantastic Four number 60, the team was split. And very soon after yep. that, Reed Richards became the new Ultimate Doom. And there never was a Fantastic Four team after that. No. I would like to think, and, and people speculate that the reason Marvel Comics is doing this is because of the movie rights. And I understand that movie production sales and the relationship between that and which comic stories are getting emphasis is a very real thing. I would like to think that there's more going on behind the Fantastic Four's cancellation than sticking it to Fox. I would like to think that it's yeah. because of a very real realization that right now, Fantastic Four is not where it's at. Yeah, the Fantastic Four comic sales were around thirty to 35000 a month when the decision was made, and Secret Wars got pitched that would have wrapped it up and, as I said, taken them off the table, and they decided to run with it. I, To me, the idea that they're trying to stick it to Fox simply does not hold water, because if Fox depended on the current comic readers to justify their budgets, they wouldn't make superhero movies at all because comic sales are nowhere near the numbers needed to make a blockbuster film profitable. Yeah, and that's something that's that's a very real fact that I think that gets forgotten is that the comics profits made by a company for an entire year and the movie profits that are made from one single film, we're looking at David and Goliath or maybe Ant-Man and Goliath. The, the, the difference in money-making between comics and movies is substantial. Yeah, when you need to bring in $600 million at the box office to break even, when if every single person who's buying the Fantastic Four goes out and buys a movie ticket, they will come up to less than half a million in box office, there's just no comparison. Right. The best you can hope for is satisfying the comic fans 
so that they become your advertisers in the online markets, right? It's not their sales. It's the, the diehard fans going, no, 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 this movie's great mm-hmm. that are going to drive sales, if anything. So it's, I just, I've heard that rumor. I don't buy it, especially since they were wrapping up their Fantastic Four at the same time they were expanding the X-Men franchise. Right. Which is the other property owned by Fox. Yeah, X-Men has not gone anywhere. People keep thinking that the the the, the death knell of the X-Men is coming with the next big event, and it just they keep on making new X-Men titles. Yeah. And I mean we're talking about it not just expanding, but putting Brian Michael Bendis, who's one of their top writing talents, on the books. Mm-hmm. And oh my gosh, did I love his ideas. <laughs> I I I I haven't yet read his entire run, but I've I've read a good half or more of it, and I'm just behind. And oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. To me, that whole they're doing it to screw Fox thing just holds absolutely no water with me. Yeah, we didn't really talk about some of the story points of the story itself. I, I had a couple of things I just wanted to bring out. One is the look of the thing because yeah, I read an issue of What the. Back when I was a kid, that had Power Pack on it, and they're walking along the beach talking and grumbling. And somebody mentioned the thing and described him as the guy man of orange rocks. And so, in my head, all my life, the thing has been the guy made out of orange rocks. And certainly, he definitely looks like he has orange rocks for skin in a lot of interpretations. But the skin texture he has here is much more what you might expect from like a dinosaur kind of idea very modely and scaly and tough leathery more than rocky yeah his his tie to earth is really more that he's made of clay yeah i like this one yeah that it he does seem to be like this misshapen blob of clay more than anything else and susan storm and reed are engaged in this and that is forgotten Almost immediately, certain by certainly by issue four, whenever Namor is revived, the fact that they were engaged has become. We're not even entirely sure that they're actively romantic until much later, whenever Reed is able to deal with his feelings about Sue's feelings about Namor, and they confess their love for each other, and then from there it's marriage, and then from there it's baby. So that's that's a difference between what you're expecting to see and what actually happens in the story. Now that I think about it, maybe that was all I wanted to say about the story. <laughs> it's a good story. I like the origin of the Fantastic Four. It's classic. It's sci-fi. It feels very much like a 60s sci-fi story. Like if this were a subplot in a Flash Gordon, you know, some some characters brought into some old old school sci-fi story, this would fit right at home with that. And then it's used as the jump start for a superhero story that's also kind of a monster story. Going back to last week's The Hulk discussion, in an era of monster mags, this is superheroes fighting monsters. And so it does kind of yeah. feel like it, it fits into that era of comics as well. And with, with second yeah. issue, we have scrolls. It's not until the third issue that they have an actual sort of human villain. But one of his things, Mr. Miracle's things, is that he made a movie monster statue come to life. So once again, they're fighting monsters. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much so. This is... So the concepts in here are great. The execution is well, it's dated because they. This is the issue that starts off a transformation in the way comics are made. Comics have, to put it bluntly, grown up since this came out. Mm-hmm. And while this was a huge step, if we track the development of comics as you know, with the development of of a childhood and the human lifespan, early golden age 
was rather hedonistic and all over the place. So, you know, kind of up to the toddler stage. Then we get the childhood as we get into, you know, the Wortham era and the, the Silver Age and that sort of thing. If this is the comic book lifespan, puberty starts here, right? This is the road to becoming an adult medium. I like that analogy because one of the things that, you know, as a, as a teacher and as someone who has to kind of understand about a little, at least a little bit about developmental psychology, when puberty hits, your fully functioning, very well equipped childhood brain falls apart and has to recreate itself as an adult brain. And you, you know, you lose a lot of your skills that you had as a child, a lot of your patterns of responsibility that you had established by nine or 10 years old. And now you're having to, to relearn a lot of those skills. And so here, Fantastic Four number one comes along and with the help of other comics that come along after it sort of breaks the medium. And then they spend the next two or three years finding out what they're going to be now and growing from that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is it. I don't know. It, it's hard to overplay how important this comic is for what happens to the industry from this point forward. It's, I don't know. I'm, I think we're just going to beat a dead horse if we keep going on that. So I uh, want to move from here to uh, John, where did you first encounter the story? When was the first time you read it? In the Fantastic Four Masterworks volume. As a kid, I was a big Spider-Man reader. I did not read the Fantastic Four, but I I knew the Fantastic Four because they featured heavily in the first 20 issues of Spider-Man. And since I had been reading the first 20 issues of Spider-Man since I was old enough to read, whenever Marvel started putting out Masterworks volumes, I got one. And I got one of the X-Men too, because, you know, X-Men. But those first 10 issues of Fantastic Four, I had all in one volume, and they were really fun to read, and I read that several times. So whenever I got back into comics as an adult, rereading those first 10 issues and reading beyond them were fun and getting my two kids into comics. One of the first things we have to do was read fantastic four number one. And actually, as we've been recording, my six year old is sitting here next to me and he's like, that's the first issue. Did we read that? He's like, yeah, we read it. He's like, okay. It's been a long enough time now that he wasn't sure he remembered it. Yeah. I only remembered teeny tiny bit. So there you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I guess from here we should move into the part of the podcast that I've so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that is doing great work and everyone should check it out. Are there any messages, morals, and meanings in here? And I, I don't clearly see any. Yeah, it's a bit harder to find. It's it's the, the cool story ideas of sci-fi without any of the metaphor that sci-fi has at its best. I mean, people have been changed and they have to deal with that. And it's cool we have a superhero team that doesn't automatically get along and be happy and cheery. And certainly that idea has been taken to its extreme over the course of the decades since. But um, as far as like meanings and messages for, for humanity, I know. Yeah. I mean, aside from maybe saying, you know, these heroes that you're worshiping out there, your sports heroes or whatever, they're human beings and they may not be perfect, which I don't think is deliberate. I think it's a side effect of just trying to do almost a counterculture idea of rejecting the way superheroes have been written in recent years. There is don't be a jerk to ugly people. Yeah. Both, both with, mainly with the mole man. It's not as, it's not really done very much with the thing here, but it does kind of come out over time. Certainly the thing has a huge pathos and humanity element to him over time, but it's really not done a whole lot here. Yeah. Oh, that was another thing I was going to talk about with the story elements earlier. When the thing is all mad after their flight, He's like, how can you stand Reed when I'm the man you should love? And so Ben Grimm really wants Susan Storm to love him. 
in a moment that is never talked about again for a long time, but becomes a huge part of the ultimate Fantastic Four. Yeah. There's a couple hints that he's got a crush on her, but he's not. That that goes away fairly early, mm-hmm. where it really settles into more of a family dynamic with Reed and Sue as parents and Ben and Johnny as the kids. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Well, not unfortunately, because it's a fun dynamic, but Ben Grimm is a grown man. <laughs> he should act like one. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'd say from there, it's a matter of just discussing why we think Atlanta at this point in the rankings. And it's, if anything, I think it's as low as number 14, just because storytelling has matured a lot and some of those growing pains are here and it's not as well executed as later issues would be. Yeah. And for that reason, I'm, I'm surprised it's not higher, but I'm also surprised it's not lower. You know, I mean, 14 is a, 14 is a nice place for it. It could have gone higher or lower for importance or for, I enjoyed the first part of the Hulk more than I enjoy this issue, (laughs) to be honest. The origin part is the yeah. best part of the story. The The shenanigans at the beginning and the mole man stuff after is a bit less satisfying to modern reader. Yeah. I mean, we typically when we're trying to figure out why they landed at this point in the rankings, we look at three elements. There's the entertainment value, the importance of the significance to continuity, and there's the messages and meanings. This is not a message book, as many of them are not. The entertainment value, it, it's somewhat entertaining, but that alone is not enough to land it on the list. It's this is here, I think, by and large, because it's important. It's hugely important. Yeah. If you were to ask me to make a list of the most important comics in history, I would probably put this second only to Action Comics number one. Yeah. I'll buy that. Maybe Amazing Fantasy 15 could give it a run for its money. <sighs> yeah. But even then, you wouldn't have that without this. Yeah. Because it was almost a year later. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's really where it is. And it is easy to recommend because it's not. You know, as much as we've talked about how the story is not as good as it could be, it's also not terrible, right? It just shows some of the growing pains of the industry. So if you're interested in the history of superhero comics, this must be read just because it, it, it as we said, it's transformative. So, all right. So from there, uh, John, why don't you remind people where they can find your stuff? My stuff. I have two podcasts that I'm actively promoting right now, as opposed to the other ones that I'm not currently making episodes of. And so maybe I'll be promoting them again in the future, but but not right now. Those are Avengers Inspirations that I do with my daughter, where we look at all of the comics that involve characters from the Avengers franchise of films and TV shows and Netflix productions. And then we also, I have a new endeavor that is monthly, that is the Giant Superman podcast with my good friend Bob Fisher, who is a huge fan of the Silver Age of Superman, which is an era that I've really enjoyed reading the last couple of years. And so we are using DC's annual collections of Superman stories, um, their giant-sized issues, as a vehicle to discuss this era of Superman in monthly giant-sized podcasting chunks. So the Giant Superman podcast can be found at giantsuperman.libson.com. Episode 1 hit January 31, episode 2, February 29th, and you'll be finding the third one at the end of March. Okay. All right. So... Uh, those of us who are following along at home and reading along with the podcast, next week we are going to be looking at Captain America Comics number one. This is the one from the 1940s. So it's been reprinted in Captain America the Classic Heroes hardcover, Captain America the Classic Heroes volume one trade paperback, Great Comic Book Superheroes hardcover, Marvel Masterworks 43 Golden Age Captain America volume one, Marvel Milestone editions, Captain America Comics number one, Marvel Milestones Iron Man, Ant-Man, and Captain America, number one. 
Marvel Milestones Wolverine, X-Men, and Tuck Caveboy, number three. <laughs> Marvel Visionaries Jack Kirby, volume one and two. Steve Rogers Super Soldier, number one, and Marvel Digital Unlimited. So, in the meantime, feel free to rate this and any other shows that you listen to on iTunes or on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed. Share links to the show with friends who you think may be interested, and thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, uh-huh. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the Ant-Man before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you!